thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello. This week, what do you think life will be like in 2100? To find out, we've asked a panel of movers and shakers to predict the future that awaits. Their suggestions include implants to transfer memories. So what will healthcare look like and what jobs are we all going to be doing? Plus, an underground lake on Mars, the magnetic device that can find cancer in the bloodstream and the cat parasite that makes people better at business. I'm Georgia Mills. I'm Chris Smith and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up, this week decades of debate have been apparently settled as it's been announced that there is currently liquid water on Mars. A team from the Italian National Institute for Astrophysics has discovered a lake under the planet's south polar ice cap. It's about 20 kilometres wide and full of liquid water. But how did the team discover this and what does this mean about the possibility of life on Mars? We have astrophysicist Carolyn Crawford in the studio with us to tell us all about it. Thanks for joining us, Carolyn. Hello there. This lake is underground. How did they find it? Well, if you're going to find water underground, you have to use radar. So this discovery was made with the Marsis instrument above the surface of the planet. It's riding on the European Space Agency's Mars Express satellite. And what it does is it pulses radar signals down to the ground and then recedes the signal as it's been reflected back. And the timing of the signal return and also how much it's been diminished by that reflection tells you something about what lies under the ground. So what they've discovered, about one and a half kilometres underneath the South Pole, there's a very bright reflection signal, which they interpret as a lake of liquid water right under the South Pole. Now, that's really exciting. But how confident can we be in this interpretation? Well, that's always the question because, you know, you're not actually there sampling it yourself. You're relying on radar signals, uh, your understanding of the temperature profile underneath the South Pole, you know, underneath the crust of Mars, also the chemical composition of the rocks and the soil. And you've got to be absolutely sure about interpreting those radar signals right. Now, it looks like they've done a good job, but there will have to be further confirmation. And also just to see if there are any other signals like this, you know, it could it be due to anything else. But currently, it looks like it's a boundary between the bottom of the ice and the beginning of this lake. And that's their best interpretation. And we've always thought that there wasn't liquid water on Mars, at least that was a sort of standard opinion. So why didn't we think it was there? And why is it only in this place? Well, you can't have liquid water on the surface of Mars. That's the key thing, because the air pressure is incredibly low and the temperature is very low. So it's either frozen, or if it's exposed to the air, it just sublimates, so it evaporates away completely. So the only possible place you could have liquid water is if it's been 
somewhere like the South Pole, where it's squeezed by the pressure, the weight of all those layers of ice and dust on top. And so that you've got that pressure that provides the heating. And the other thing it's important to say that we're talking about water, but this is going to be not water like comes out of your tap. This is going to be very briny, very salty water. And some of those salts can almost act like an antifreeze. So both the increased pressure and that salty content means that it can stay liquid, even though it may be sort of minus 10, minus 20 degrees C. So what's the next step for this team? What are they going to do next? Well, they're obviously going to check the signal, the temperature, the signal. They'll work with other radar teams just to check nobody's got any other idea. You're going to have to see whether this is typical or you have a large number of lakes. But really, if you want to investigate it, you need to go there. And we're a long way off doing that because then you're going to have to land a completely sterile um, lander at the South Pole and work out a way of drilling down one and a half kilometres and extracting out some core sample. That's going to be your best bet to actually see the water and know it's there. And here's the question on everyone's minds. What does this mean about the possibility of life on Mars? Well, it's exciting. I mean, not only are we interested in the water history of Mars, but we know on Earth that wherever we find water, we find life. So the idea that there's a persistent pocket of liquid water, it just raises the possibility that there is an environment already on Mars which could host life, and here we're talking microbial life, but also that it is more likely in the past because we know Mars's south polar cap was at least twice as big in the past. There was lots more ice to melt to form the water and also there would be more radioactive heating in the crust which would have also provided the heat, you know, the heat needed to turn this to water. So it may not be relevant necessarily for life now, but it does certainly provide a big first step to saying that here's an environment where you could have had life in the past. Exciting times. Thank you very much, Carolyn Crawford from Cambridge University's Institute of Astronomy. It's been an exciting week for David Bowie's estate for royalties, I should think, as well, hasn't it? <laughs> now, back here on Earth, up to one in five people suffers from some form of chronic pain, and these sorts of conditions are notoriously hard to treat. But now scientists in London have made a breakthrough. They've used a component of the nerve-deactivating chemical Botox, this is called botulinum toxin, and they've linked it like two Lego bricks to a molecule of something that looks like the painkiller, morphine. Injected into the spinal cord, the construct docks with the pain nerve cells that are normally sensitive to opioid painkillers. These take the botulinum toxin inside, where it then selectively shuts down the transmission of just pain signals in that part of the spine for up to three months. UCL's Maria Mayaru discovered how to do it. Pain is a huge global health problem and seriously affects the quality of life. Opioid drugs at the moment are considered to be the gold standard for pain relief, but there is little evidence that long-term use is effective in the treatment of chronic pain. Moreover, the body develops tolerance to repeated drug treatment, which necessitate higher dose to achieve pain relief. The body will also develop dependence and addiction. For all these reasons, we need more safe and effective drugs to treat chronic pain. So how have you tried to go about doing this then? Because people have been trying to invent better painkillers ever since Bayer invented aspirin 100 years ago. So we started from a work that was published about 20 years ago. In the spinal cord, we have a specific neuronal population that sends this painful message, if you want, to the brain. So these people selectively killed this neuron in the spinal cord and provided pain relief. 
The same approach didn't translate into the clinic from, for human use because doctors are reluctant to use drugs that will kill your cells and your neurons. So to overcome this issue, we use the neurotoxin properties of the botulinum toxin to specifically silence but not kill neurons in the spinal cord. So you can temporarily sort of knock out the nerve cells in the same way as a person who doesn't want wrinkles can inject a bit of Botox, which temporarily paralyzes the conversation between the nerve and the muscle so the wrinkle irons out. You're saying go into the spinal cord and use Botox in the same way to temporarily interrupt the chemical conversation between the pain nerves so that the person still has their nerve intact, but they can't feel anything. But we did this by using a Lego system to link the botulinum toxin to a specific molecule, in this case is an opioid called dermorphine, to target neurons in the spinal cord that express a specific receptor used by morphine. So the compound can go inside the neurons and then silence the neuron without killing them. Right, so what we have here is you're linking something that looks a bit like morphine with the component of the botulinum toxin so that it will bind onto the cells that would normally hear the morphine signal. And this will carry the toxin to just the cells that need to be deactivated. Exactly. What the botulinum does, it just stops for a period the release of neurotransmitters. So the pain signaling that the neuron in the spinal cord is receiving is not traveling up to the brain. So you don't feel the pain anymore because the neuron that was responsible for the transmission of this information is now silent. How do you get the construct of the morphine-like chemical with the toxin-like chemical into the nerves that need it in the first place? We inject a tiny amount of the compound intratically in the spinal cord of, uh, of our animal models. And what sorts of pain states or pain syndromes have you investigated to see how good this is? So we use it two different preclinical models of chronic pain, a model of inflammatory pain and a model of neuropathic pain. And we found that a single injection of our compound reduces the pain hypersensitivity for up to one month and to the same extent as morphine. So in other words, a person who, assuming you translate this successfully to human patients, a person who had one of your injections wouldn't need another one for a month. Exactly. But we think we did some experiment in vitro, so on cell culture, and the fact it lasts for at least 100 days, so up to three months. But do you not end up with a patch of the body which, albeit temporarily, does not have any ability to feel pain? So is there a possibility you could use this on somebody? They they get a numb patch of skin that they could then injure quite severely because they're not aware that they're burning that bit of their skin, for example. I'm glad you asked because the pain uh, relief that we achieve is not completely So these mice are still uh, able to uh, discriminate what is an acute stimulation. We do not achieve a 100% of pain uh, relief. It's amazing, isn't it? Maria Mayaru with a new way to, as the old cliche goes, hit pain where it hurts. She's at University College London and her study describing that discovery just came out in the journal Science Translational Medicine. Now, still to come on The Naked Scientist, we'll be flying forward 80 years to the year 2100. 
But first, it's time for this. What happens when the science and technology of space comes down to Earth? Welcome to Down to Earth from the Naked Scientists, the mini-series that explores the spin-offs from space technology that are being used on Earth. I'm Dr Stuart Higgins. This episode, how developing a special coating for water filters for space missions led to scratch-resistant lenses for glasses. A clean supply of water is critical if you want to send humans to space. In the 1970s, researchers at NASA were trying to develop a water filter for space missions using a process called reverse osmosis. Contaminated water is forced under pressure through the filter, which contains pores so small that only the pure water can pass through. At the time, filters were made by coating different types of plastics onto a surface and allowing them to form thin skins with tiny holes in. However, making these filters was difficult because factors such as how warm or humid it was in the day could affect the properties of the manufactured filter. So the NASA team came up with a new way of making them instead. They used plasma polymerization. They placed a piece of ordinary filter paper with its larger pores inside a glass jar, pumped out the air and pumped in a small amount of either nitrogen or argon, plus the chemical ingredients for making a plastic. By applying a high-frequency electric field between two metal plates across the jar, they generated an electrical plasma, atoms of gas that had their electrons ripped away by the electric field. This plasma interacted with the plastic-making chemicals, causing them to deposit and link together on the surface of the filter paper. This layer of plastic contained the small pores needed to make a good filter. The benefit of their approach was that it was highly controlled and allowed consistent and strongly bound layers of plastic to form. While this solved their original problem, the engineers quickly realised they could use the same trick with different chemicals to create other coatings. In 1972, the US government introduced new rules that meant the lenses used in a pair of glasses needed to be shatter-resistant to protect the user from injury. Plastic lenses were a cheap and easy-to-manufacture alternative to glass, but were very easy to scratch in everyday life. The NASA engineers applied their plasma technique to coating the plastic lenses with a hard material based on organosilanes. Organosilanes are materials that contain both carbon and silicon, and they can be made to form strong bonds to both surfaces and to themselves. This meant that the coated plastic became tougher and more resistant to scratches, allowing the widespread adoption of plastic lenses. So that's how engineers working on water filters for space missions use the same technology to develop scratch-resistant coatings for plastic lenses, improving the safety and usefulness of glasses around the world. That was Down to Earth from the Naked Scientists. My name is Dr Stuart Higgins, and you can find more episodes online at nakedscientist.com slash downtoearth. Thanks, Stuart. And next time, Stuart's going to be busting some myths and talking about things that everyone thinks were invented for the space race, but actually, they weren't. Now, one of the reasons cancer is often so deadly is that it's usually caught relatively late, at a stage where treatment is less likely to be effective. This is because, at present, we don't have a method that's sensitive enough to detect early cancers reliably. Standard scans and blood tests simply aren't good enough. And this is precisely the problem a team of researchers at Stanford University have set out to tackle, using a combination of nanoparticles and a tiny magnetic wire. To find out more, Isabel Cochran spoke to Sam Gambier, Professor of Cancer Research at Stanford University. We know that tumours shed different molecules that end up in the blood, and the problem is that when the tumour is small and very early, the molecules that are being shed into the blood are present only in very low quantities. And so 
to find these rare molecules from an early tumor, we need a way in which we can go into your blood and filter out all those molecules. The idea is that this little magnetic wire called mag wire, which is about a millimeter in diameter and about six millimeters in length, it's made up of tiny little magnets, very powerful little magnets that can enter your body in the vein. And then if anything magnetic is going by, the magnets in the wire will attract those magnetic molecules that are going by. So we also put in little magnetic nanoparticles that stick to the molecules the tumor is making. So within about 20 minutes of having a wire in your blood, we can sample the entire blood volume in your body, pull out the wire, and then analyze everything stuck to it so that we can get a detailed assessment if there may be a hidden tumor. How do you specifically manage to tag the tumor molecules themselves rather than anything else that's floating around in the blood? We can target anything we want in the blood by using the property of antibodies that can be very specific to binding to anything we want to find. For example, sometimes the tumors, not only do they shed little molecules out into the blood, but the cells themselves shed into the blood. That's called circulating tumor cells. Circulating tumor cells have a molecule on their surface that makes them unique, and we can have an antibody that finds that molecule, and the antibody is attached to a little magnetic nanoparticle. And how do you decide what might be a useful molecule to look for? Based on progress in the early cancer detection world, we continue to find different molecules that are useful to go after. For example, with circulating tumor cells, those tumor cells have a molecule on their surface called EPCAM. And EPCAM, if it's found on the surface of a cell in the blood, is highly likely to be a tumor cell. But because those things exist in rare amounts, you still need a solution like the Magwire to, in fact, sample the entire body's blood volume because when the tumor gets smaller and smaller, whatever is going to be shed into the blood is present at lower and lower concentrations. Does this mean that we can make the Magwire sensitive enough to eventually be useful as a screening test for cancer? So the Magwire could eventually be a screening test, although it's more likely to be useful for high-risk populations as opposed to the larger population that we would call low-risk. And the reason is the Magwire would have to be left in for about 20 minutes, and it's unlikely that we would put millions and millions of people through a screening process where they would not just get a simple blood draw but would have to have a wire in them for 20 minutes. However, for people that are at higher risk, that have family histories of cancer, have other history or genetic issues related to cancer, in those cases it may in fact make sense to use the Magwire to in fact detect if they have a early cancer. Do we know if there are any risks associated with using the Magwire? We don't know about any risks yet. We continue to study that. There's probably no significant risk from the wire itself. There may be some risks in the nanoparticles. So the nanoparticles that one can use are made of things like iron. 
different elements that are magnetic. But we, in fact, give to humans iron-based nanoparticles. We break down the nanoparticle and use the iron in the nanoparticle. So it's not that unusual to actually give someone a magnetic nanoparticle. Now, to anyone else like me who is worried, Chris has just been telling me that the iron in your blood is not in a magnetic form, so the magnet wouldn't suck out all of your blood. No, someone did write to us once and said, don't those people who work at sort of dumps and and car yards where they move old cars around with a giant magnet, wouldn't they they have something of a health problem if that were the case? And the answer is reliably no. You you don't have all your blood rushing towards the magnet at the junkyard. (laughs) People getting stuck to the (laughs) lid. Well, that was Sam Gambier speaking to Isabel Cochrane, and the study they're talking about is published in Nature Biomedical Engineering. Now, a paper out this week claims that the parasite Toxoplasma gondii, which cats shed in their faeces, can, if we catch it, reduce our fear of failure and boost our chances of success. Now, according to the team who are from Colorado, professionals at business events were nearly twice as likely to have started their own companies if they tested positive for Toxo. So, are parasites really pulling our strings? Well, we're joined by Combs University's Jim Agioka, who wasn't involved in this study, but he does work on this parasite. So, Jim, first of all, what did they find in the study and how did they do it? Basically, what they did is they surveyed a number of business students and other businessmen in various places in the U.S. and in Europe and just simply asked the question, does your exposure to toxoplasma correlate with your ability to do business in an entrepreneurial way or at least in a survey? they could pull that out. And they found a correlation. I mean, there's emphasis on the fact that they found a correlation. They're not saying that being infected with toxoplasmosis causes you to become very good at business. Because if that were true, populations like France, where the majority of the population, as far as I know, is at least half the population carried, isn't it? That they ought to be leading the world. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I mean, all these things are probably small effects. But There's been a number of studies, both in animals and in other survey studies in humans, where they've looked at changes in behavior between when you're exposed to toxoplasma or not, and most of those have shown some kind of correlation. In the animal studies, there's really good evidence that there is neurological disturbance with the parasite. What does toxo actually do? What's its life cycle, and how might this effect that the Colorado team have picked up be biologically plausible, based on what we know about what the the toxoplasma parasite does to our nervous system? Right. So the parasite has two parts to its life cycle that are important. One is the sexual part of the life cycle, where the cat is the definitive host, and the parasite will go into the cat and be shed in the feces, as you noted before, in probably about 10 million infectious particles. So in each, it, when the cat goes in its litter tray, yes. each, each cat turd has yeah. got 10 well, million, yes. could infect 10 million uh, people. Across a couple of weeks, yeah, you'll, they'll shed about 10 million. And if you pick up one of those things, it's on your vegetables or you're a keen gardener, you pick those up, you put them in your mouth, you'll probably get toxoplasma and infection, but you won't notice it because in humans, the, the symptoms are actually quite mild. So first it will establish a sort of acute infection, which you probably wouldn't notice because it doesn't really do much in in humans. Other animals, it does. And the parasite will be cleared by your immune system. But what it tries to do is is to set up a resting form or chronic form in places where your immune system doesn't work very well, your brain being one of those places. We know from animal studies that you will get neurodegeneration from the presence of the parasite and a chronic infection in the brain. But what's the sort of biological origin of the, the risk-taking slash daring slash entrepreneurial flair that people might show if they have it? Where does that come from? Well, the idea is that the parasite, its job really is to replicate and then spread. 
that's what natural selection will do. And so part of the way that it spreads is to be eaten by other animals. If you're more risk-taking, your behavior for trying to avoid predation is lower. And so natural selection will select the parasite to manipulate the host such that it will be more easily eaten. You said that the definitive host, where the parasite really wants to be, is a cat. Therefore, is it mice and rats that cats classically and traditionally catch that tend to have the the more daring behavior normally when they're infected? That's right. When you look at other studies, Joanne Webster at Oxford, for example, did some nice studies with with rats. And in fact, she showed that rats had definitely had a a much more risk-taking behavior with regards to predator presence than the ones that were not infected. Jim, thanks very much. That was Jim Adjoka from the University of Cambridge. And you can read the study that uh, Stephanie Johnson and her colleagues uh, carried out that Jim was discussing there in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society B. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Now for the main part of the programme, today Georgia and I are destined for the future. Our destination is actually the year 2100 and our objective, to find out what life will be like then. Where will we live? What jobs will we do? And how will we get to and from work? To guide us through a day in the life of a 22nd century citizen... We're checking in with radio producer of the future, Izzy Clark, who's just waking up. Mm, no. Good morning, Izzy. Today's date is 29th July 2100. It is currently 7am. Today's agenda begins with an executive board meeting at 8.30am. OK, Alexis. Please open the window. Oh, another beautiful day in future London. But what will the city of the 22nd century look like? According to the United Nations, 54% of the world's population currently lives in urban areas. And by 2050, that number is expected to reach 66% and continue to climb. So how will these ever more populated cities function? And how might artificially intelligent buildings help? With us is Mike Pitts, Interim Challenge Director at Innovate UK. Hi, Mike. So what is your vision for the city of 2100? Well, cities in the future are going to become more and more important. They're important now. We're becoming a more and more urban species. And the reason is, in cities we have higher GDP, we have lower carbon footprint. So cities of the future will manage a lot of the downsides while keeping those upsides. And the kind of downsides we want to try to improve are things like the physical and mental health issues we have in cities, the environmental sides of things, and also the way we manage our cities. So cities of the future will be greener. We know there's a lot of relationship between green space and our physical and mental health. And we also know that we'll have to be able to manage our infrastructure better in the future. So our our infrastructure will be smarter. Buildings will generate their own energy and the city itself will work almost holistically, almost like an organism. How will it work like an organism? How will things all be connected? So what we're doing more and more is kind of connecting our physical and our digital worlds. So things like the Internet of Things, where we're adding a digital layer on top of all objects, 
either through sensors or we're plugging more and more of our devices into the internet and connecting them all up. They're all collecting the information we need to be able to visualize the city in you know, perfect kind of duplicate in a digital world. It's almost like the matrix. And that's essentially what we're calling a digital twin. And from that, we can control the city better. We can control the flows of everything, all the services the city's there to provide to citizens, even down to things like health. City can monitor you and kind of nudge you in the right kind of direction. Perhaps it'll encourage you to do more walking. So, yeah, the Internet of Things is something that's around now and people are sort of connecting things up in their house to to the Internet. But could would this be on a larger scale in the future with things like buildings talking to each other? Absolutely. So buildings in the future will be generating their own energy. They'll also be doing a lot of things we want them to do, cleaning water and managing waste. And it'll be kind of trading these flows of materials, whether that's electricity or heat or waste or water between them. And so where some's been kind of produced, so wastewater coming out of a building going into somewhere that needs it. And that'll be optimised across all sorts of trans- systems like transport and health. And that should free up us humans to do the more human jobs. When you say they'll generate their own energy, in what kind of way might they do this? So I have all sorts of uh, embedded technologies into the fabric of buildings. So everything from photovoltaic roofs to facades on buildings that draw in heat from the air and can store it. So it's as much about managing things like heating and cooling as it is about electricity. Right, so there could be one building in the sun getting lots of energy from solar power and the building next to it is in the shade but trying to get a lot done. So the building could just say, hey, do you want some energy? And just sort of send it over. Exactly, or <laughs> or a data centre generating a lot, trying to get rid of a lot of heat very quickly and we can move that out through heat networks to buildings that need heat. Or more and more in the future where we need cooling. Uh, you mentioned there'll be more green spaces. So how will our future cities be more environmentally friendly, more sustainable? Well, we'll have to build in more and more green space. It's, we know it's so important to kind of mental health, but it's also really important to things like managing pollution and the heat, urban heat island effect. So this challenge we have in built-up areas where the city itself can be up to eight degrees warmer than the surrounding hinterland because of the way infrastructure absorbs heat in the day and reflects it back at night. And that's mitigated by things like green space. So we'll see more and more green space as we manage our transport and our resource flows better. All that space that's taken up with the services in the city can be turned back over to to green space. You paint a a lovely picture here. So everything's greener, everything's smarter. We're a lot more efficient with everything. Is this what you think the future will be like or what you think it should be like? (laughs) We very much think this is the way the future is going. Uh, The kind of work I do in Innovate UK with the industrial strategy is these are kind of the ideas and things that businesses are working on now. But what's going to be really important in the future is the cities that will survive are the ones that manage social interaction well. Social interaction drives a lot of the benefits in cities. Strong culture, strong innovation is what really brings the value to cities and why people want to live there. So the cities that do that best are going to be the ones that really survive and thrive in the future. Thanks, Mike. That's Mike Pitts from Innovate UK. Now it's time to go back to our 22nd century citizen, Izzy Clark, who's just finished her future breakfast. Mm. That's some good 3D printed egg on toast. Time is 7.45am. You need to leave now to meet your appointment. OK, Selexis, get me to work. Your unmanned aerial taxi has been ordered. ETA is 8am. Now, there is inevitably a huge amount of hype around what will be the transport of tomorrow. And most likely, 
you'll be able to request Uber-like public transport services like multi-user driverless pods. You'll hail them electronically and then the nearest one that's heading your way will come by, pick you up and take you where you want to go. The transport system should, if this happens, work much more efficiently and hopefully traffic jams are going to be a thing of the past. V Nguyen has been to see the transport of the future for herself. Hi, I'm Ben Peters. I'm co-founder and VP product at 5AI. So we're at our proving grounds, so the facility where we uh, build and test our vehicles. Uh, this is a standard Ford vehicle platform, so it's, uh, it's the Fusion platform, which is a light electric hybrid that we've modified with uh, a bunch of autonomous kits to make it drive itself. Um, so if I show you around the vehicle... The car of tomorrow looks a lot like the car of today, but with some rather funky add-ons. The roof is decked out with various cameras and sensors, and sci-fi-looking antennas align the bonnet and boot, while the interior is largely full of flashing computer power. And these adjustments help the car to see and think. One of the first steps we perform is the localization step uh, and localize ourselves to a prior map. And we use uh, a bunch of different sensors to do that. So we're using the LiDAR and the vision sensors to do that. And we do occasionally also use GPS, which is partly what you can see on the car, the, the antennas in the rear. So, um, so once you've localized yourself, one of the next things you need to perform really is uh, recognizing everything that isn't on the map. So what we refer to as dynamic objects. So that is all of the pedestrians, all of the cyclists, all of the vehicles. And we need to be able to classify them as that. So accurately determine that they are indeed pedestrians or cyclists or vehicles and even what type of vehicle they might be. Are they a lorry or are they a sports car, uh, etc.? And to position them in 3D space and to have an idea of what their pose is and what their velocity is. Then we need to actually determine what's likely to happen next in a scene. So by that I mean what is the, the likely action and interaction of the dynamic agents in a scene. To do that with any confidence, we need to have some understanding of how those dynamic agents tend to behave. So we do that by learning typical behaviours. We learn from the data that we capture with our vehicles and we learn from the data that we capture from CCTV footage. We learn how actors tend to behave and how they tend to interact with each other. And then in runtime in our vehicles, based on, on the learnings we have for how these agents tend to behave, we play forwards multiple potential futures and try to analyse a path through those potential futures that leads to us safely getting to where we want to go. But even with thousands of hours of data and machine learning, we're still not close to matching the prowess of the human brain. So if we look at some of the science problems that we have to solve, the classification performance of things like cyclists at the moment, best-in-class science, is something like 75% precision, meaning we're still missing about a quarter of cyclists on a frame-by-frame basis. So novel science is needed to get classification performance of many of the things that we care to identify to get that to the level that it needs to be to be safe. And then even on the prediction and path planning side, really being able to accurately predict how agents interact and to do that safely over a reasonable time horizon is still an unsolved problem. While the science has a ways to go before we can unleash these cars on our roads, the Proving Ground provides a safe place to test and troubleshoot. So, of course, I had to have a ride in one of them. Hi, I'm Jamie Lowry. I'm one of the development engineers here at 5AI. I'm currently parked at the start line. I'm just going to uh, press the engage for the autonomous mode. So we'll see the system 
take control. I'm uh, completely hands-free at the moment. We're coming up to the first corner, which is a switchback right then left over a brow, and it's just control itself over the top of the hill. We're just about to come to a stop here, so you'll feel the brakes come on as we come to our end waypoint, and I'll disengage. And that was the system disengaging. Being driven around without a driver was surreal. But what's the plan for when these cars hit the roads alongside you and me? Back to Ben. What we're aiming to do is to build this autonomous technology into our service vehicles and deliver urban transportation services that are more attractive than driving your own personal vehicle and can be delivered at a significantly lower cost. And these will be shared services. So we think if we can get the service design right, it will encourage people to give up their personal cars to share these vehicles and therefore reduce congestion and the environmental impacts of congestion. Most people don't actually enjoy commuting in their own personal vehicles. They tend to be stuck in traffic jams. And you know, they buy these fairly expensive items, the, the most expensive thing people buy after a house, and have them sat depreciating on their driveways for 94 95% of the time. And you know, we burn up the world's resources in creating these cars and then just have them sat rotting in car parks. That is the kind of both the economically and the environmentally low-hanging fruit that we want to replace with our, with our consumer service. Maybe in the year 2100, human driving will be completely obsolete. With the far more energy and time-efficient driverless cars making traffic jams and accident a distant memory. But before then, driverless cars need to share the roads with driver-full cars, which presents its own challenges. For many, many years, the autonomous vehicles that we develop will be sharing the roads with human drivers. And human drivers have a certain expectation for how other human drivers behave. And so we need to be cognizant of that. So if we start to introduce behaviours that look very different to how human drivers behave, that could cause a safety problem in itself. So we need to drive in a way that is predictable for the human drivers that we, that we share roads with. That said, human drivers often take risks which they shouldn't take. A classic example would be human drivers take blind curves faster than they should. Mm-hmm. Those are the types of behaviours that we won't take with our vehicles. Um, So our vehicles are constantly, several times a second, reviewing the risk in a scene, reviewing the confidence that we have in a scene, and reviewing the visibility that we have, and moderating our speed accordingly. And that's not always something you see with, uh, with typical human driving. Not something I'd ever considered, actually, the fact that the driverless car will drive too well for human drivers to anticipate what it might do. That's ironic, isn't it? That was Ben Peters and Jamie Lowry from 5AI. They were talking with V Nguyen, taking a ride in one of their cars. Now, Mike Pitts, who is from Innovate UK, is still with us. Mike, what's your vision for the transport services of 2100 and also especially long distance transport? I think within cities, as you heard in the the piece there, there's much more optimised ways of moving everyone around. So we're using fewer vehicles to move people much more efficiently. What's more interesting is the inter-city kind of connections, and we're very excited about technologies like Hyperloop probably coming along by 2100, and that's essentially the kinds of things you've seen in movies, big pods flying down tunnels that have had the air removed from them so that there's no air air resistance and they can get from uh, city to city in minutes. So we'll have even more time to spend on admin, wouldn't you say, Mike? (laughs) Or in the pub. 
<laughs> Mike, thanks very much. That's Mike Pitts from Innovate UK. Well, we better check back in uh, on our day in the life of Izzy Clark, our notional 22nd century citizen. Please wait for a facial scan. Hello, Izzy. Welcome to the Naked Scientists Incorporated. Hello, Izzy. Did you get the most recent training session downloaded to your memory chip? No, not yet. I've, I've just got to go and attend that Holly meeting first. That's right. Naked scientists still going strong in 2100. Now, the way we work has evolved dramatically in the last 80 years. We've gone from many manual jobs to almost all of us being desk-bound, tapping away at computers. So what will the future bring? More of the same or will robots have stolen all of the jobs? I spoke with Lizalotto Lingzo, futurist and founding partner at Future Navigator, to learn more about what work will look like in the year 2100. First of all, I think uh, the office notion and the notion of paying people per hour is very much from the industrial society's logic, and I think we're going to completely depart from that. I think we will look into a future where we will be very human-centered because machines will be extremely good at being machines at that point in time. So we will have to be very good at being humans. I think we'll look back and think, oh, back in 2018, people were so primitive back then, pushing people like they were lemons, you know. They had stress, they had depressions, they had loneliness. I'm so happy with that now in the 21st Hundred, uh, we can actually uh, get something better out of people. Uh, we understand how people work. We understand that people shouldn't be working on their own. They should be working in teams. So I think we'll go from headhunting to team hunting. You will also not have the retirement as you have it today. We'll go from retirement to having breaks where you retrain, where you reorganize yourself. We probably won't have one education in the beginning of life. We will have micro-learning, adaptive learning as we go along. So we all the time, you know, get feedbacks for, okay, now Lisa Lotta has forgotten everything. She needs to catch up on this, that or the other. It's looking like as machines get better and better, some more and more people will lose their jobs. So what kinds of things will we be doing uh, 80 years from now? I'm actually not so worried about having this jobless society all indicators show that the more uh, we put technology into these different areas, the more busy we get ourselves. So, for instance, within healthcare, you now monitorize the elderly people and they know exactly when they need water, when they need exercise. And all it has created is this hydra's hit with even more jobs for the healthcare providers. And we will be around 10 billion people. So there's going to be plenty of stuff to do. It's just going to be different tasks than we used to. I mean, if you look out of the window right now, we have refugee crisis, we have environmental crisis, we have so many people who need a better quality of life. We don't have enough water. There is so many jobs out there. So I, I think it's so sad to look at these young people who are scared of entering the labor market because they hear the robots are coming and they won't be needed. You know, they are needed like never before, but it's a different kind of perspective. New jobs are going to be created. Looking at ourselves as machines, that's a big mistake. We really have to find out uh, about human nature. You probably know that empathy is going to be more important because that's a little difficult for machines to have this empathic muscle. Something that we are talking less about is actually the ability to be irritated. 
people can get very, very irritated. And there you actually have the key to clever innovation. Likewise, people can get lazy. And that's also a very good sentiment if you want to create a better planet, because it's asking yourself, what do I not want to do any longer? Or could I do this in a smarter way? Machines are not feeling lazy. So I think we have to, in a sense, tease out these very uh, human capabilities and really find out how to tease out our individual potentials in this future. I like the idea of laziness and irritability being our like defining human characteristic that separate <laughs> yeah. us from machines. Will we, I mean, will commuting still be a thing? Will we still go to offices? Already now we are skin hungry like never before. So I think we will actually need to meet and we need to meet in order to touch, in order to taste, in order to have the informality of meetings. But I think it doesn't make sense to say whether it's in real life or in virtual life a hundred years from now, because you can already now make holograms that you can actually touch. So I think you can replace quite a few of these things. I mean, I have to go into a few of the technologies that will be there. So for instance, by that time, we can do mind reading so I can read your mind. It's already happening now that you can recognize the brain waves, and you can have implants of memory we have to already now think about how much do we want to alter the human nature. It's not technology and humankind. It's really technology melting together with humans. So we'll be having these uh, super capacities uh, in ourselves, And uh, the big challenge is going to be balance that so we'll have happy lives together. And what other technologies do you think might be um, making work life different in the future? Well, the memory chip uh, that I talked about is actually putting a mouse in front of a maze and then it takes it three weeks to get into the cheese in the center and then placing a mouse in front of a maze that has never seen the maze before, taking out the chip you had in the other mouse's head, transplanting it into the other mouse. And then the mouse is actually catching the cheese in the first go, like it has been in the maze before. <laughs> well, they're doing this right now for people with dementia. So when you have become 60, you can have a kind of brain update. So you're sure you haven't forgotten anything. This is like the Matrix. It's like when Keanu Reeves gets Kung Fu downloaded into his mind. It is a little bit, but it, it works on mice now. So why not on people? So I actually think we'll have different workplaces, workplaces where you do a lot to augment people and where they might lose out on all privacy. And then you have other workplaces where they are guarding the privacy and they are fencing you in and securing your privacy. That was Liz Alotalingzo from Future Navigator with the Workplace of the Future. So what do you reckon, Chris? Would you get a memory chip implanted into your brain? I'd quite like a memory implant that will help me to remember when I'm supposed to be going places and also people's names. Having, you know, to meet so many people and remember people's names and put names to faces quickly. I mean, that, that would be good to have that enhancement, I think. Do you know what? I was thinking, no, because of the privacy, but I am always getting into trouble because I forget people's names. So I would definitely be down for that one. So now it's time to check in again with Izzy Clark, producer of the 22nd Century, who's just getting home from work. Ah, oh, home sweet home. Welcome home, Izzy. Please place your left hand palm on mirror to receive today's health evaluations. Okie dokie. Here is today's physiological monitor highlights. Your heart rate is 
75 beats a minute. Blood pressure has increased by 0.02%. The results will be sent to your GP for further evaluation. For now, take this pill. Now, there is no doubt that innovation is going to revolutionise healthcare in the future. The Internet of Things and wearable technologies will allow us to get health monitoring from anywhere in the world. Perhaps your pillow, for instance, will read your brain activity while you sleep, and then it could adjust the environment to ensure you get the best night's rest. Or, when you sit on the loo, a so-called computer will analyse what goes down the drain and then monitor your health that way. A breath sample could flag up impending ill health, for example. And artificial intelligence can then help us to develop individually tailored drug and treatment protocols. Don't believe me? Well, Catherine Priestley is the Director of Science Engagement, Innovative Medicine and Early Development at the pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca. So this is the future then? Absolutely, Chris. You only need to look at the way that we've turned science fiction into science fact in the past 80 years. 1953 was our first open heart surgery, and yet today, greater than 8,000 patients just in the UK receive new heart valves. Then the improved technologies that we've had, therapies, vaccinations, eradicating these killer diseases, you know, we're really moving in the right direction for patient survival rates there. And I think, as you heard from the other speakers, healthcare is also on that paradigm shift. And this is a result of this data connectivity, this machine intelligence. And that, coupled with automation, is going to change the way that we're going to develop and design medicines of the future. Therapies that are going to not just manage and cure, but actually the way that we're even going to run our daily lives to hopefully prevent and even delay the onset of disease. This is more of an all-round package that you're proposing then. So rather than I go to a chemist and I pick up a packet of pills that have been made by your company and take them, you're saying that you would also provide me with an app to make sure I take them on time or an app that will guide my lifestyle changes that mean that drug will work optimally in me, for example. Correct. You can sort of think about this as the pill is the the therapy and that might not be a pill in the future, who knows. But also around that pill, the apps that are going to make sure that we're compliant, that's going to actually inform you that you've got the right dose. And even then beyond the pill, you can see how apps and technologies and wearable devices, biosensors, etc., can not only form whether the medicine that you're taking is actually going to be impactful and improve the patient outcome and lead to a healthier lifestyle, but also might suggest lifestyle changes, you know, divert you from going to the fridge or that your contact lens (laughs) might actually um, inform you whether your glucose levels are changing. And actually what's going to be so clever about the machine intelligence plus the human um, interrelationship, that divergence away from that fridge, how it's going to actually change the way our lifestyles should be healthier in the future. Now, one of the things that's challenged your industry for many years is the whole question of clinical trials. It's doing big trials with large enough numbers of people to get statistically meaningful data. And often it ends up being a bit artificial because you end up putting people into quite artificial situations to make sure that it's statistically rigorous. But actually, that's not how people behave. And so it ends up biased anyway. So with all of this information gathering, is this a new opportunity to do clinical trials a whole new way? Yes, There's two aspects to think about this. Actually, what's fueling into the clinical trial will be different. So not only will the drug itself, the chemistry of the drug, 
be different. We have small molecules, monoclonal antibodies, peptides today as a routine. Now, actually, even within AstraZeneca, we've got 13 different types of chemistry going in that's going to go after new disease biology because actually we're informing back all the way from the clinic to the discovery angle to inform that better practice. We're also going to have very different preclinical data sets, ones that are more predictive using organ chips. Those are um, little microchips where you take all the different cells in a tissue or organ and actually populate them together so you get the interplay. Therefore, all the different experiments you run on those chips are better informed, more predictive of what's going to happen in the clinic. Ah, right. So you could even potentially model, say you wanted to give me a drug for a liver complaint, you could actually model my own liver on a chip and test your drug on that before you've got it anywhere near me. Potentially, although I think at that stage doing it so tailored at the preclinical stage, I think, is more that you can use stem cells at that stage um, rather than your own patient. But actually, if you then couple that with all the imagery advances, we are in the hope of creating a Google map of cancer. And the way that all of those cells all interact with the imagery, the compute power that we then have, means that what we're fueling into those clinical trials are much more predictive and more likely to succeed. So those clinical trials then, you could foresee with all the wearable technology and all the different data that's being collected in real time, those patients don't need to be in a clinical trial centre. They could be in their own home. And therefore, more patients are going to have access to more innovations that are happening in real time as well. And hopefully as patients, all of us in the future are going to end up with healthier lifestyles and better outcomes if we do have to um, manage disease. Let's hope we do. Thanks very much, Catherine. That's Catherine Priestley from AstraZeneca and before her, Mike Pitts and Lizalotta Lingso. And I hope you have enjoyed our fast forward to the year 2100. Let's see if it plays out. And thanks also to Carolyn Crawford and Jim Agioka, who you heard in the first half of the programme. Now to wrap up, it's time for Question of the Week. And Marika Ottman is fielding a question from Charlie Bennett. What is the minimum area required to sustain one human being in terms of oxygen and food? The Anglo-Saxons tried to answer this question with the concept of a hide. Around the 7th century, hides were first defined as the amount of land required to sustain a household, which converts to approximately 120 acres. On the forum, AnthroGeek12 points out that the answer really depends on the climate, the region, and dietary needs. We have historically been able to obtain our food only by collaborating within social groups and following food sources. Excellent point! In the spirit of collaboration, I put this question to Marco Springman, a researcher at the University of Oxford who studies environmental sustainability and public health. Perhaps he can give us the lay of the land. Let's start with the numbers. Our current population of 7.2 billion people uses roughly 40% of the Earth's surface for agriculture. Two-thirds of agricultural land is used as pastures for grazing and one-third for planting crops. If we divide the total area by total population, we get an estimate for the average agricultural land demand per person of about 7,000 square meters. That's roughly the size of a football field. 
an entire football pitch of provisions, now that's a lot of space for just one person. However, this size could vary based on a whole slew of factors. This is only a rough estimate, and actual land requirements will depend on factors such as the production methods used in a region and the dietary choices people make. For example, you wouldn't need that big portion of land for grazing if you ate less meat. Add in there technological improvements, reductions in food loss and waste, not eating too little or too much, and growing more of the foods that we know are healthy and we should be eating more of, such as fruits, vegetables and legumes. You'd go from a whole football field to only the penalty zones, or to an Olympic-sized swimming pool if that's more your thing. An Olympic pool-sized plot of land is about 1,200 square meters. Perhaps the best way to manage such a large plot of land would be to pool your resources. Then everything should go just swimmingly. Now that you're standing before your Olympic plot of land, you just need to start farming. For that, you might need some good friends and machinery that help you plow, set aside some land from time to time to let it recover. If you add up all the land requirements that are needed for additional people and all that equipment and machinery, you might soon be back at the size of an average country. Thanks, Marco, for giving us some food for thought. Perhaps it is better that we all stick together to ensure we have enough food. Speaking of sticking, next week we're answering this question from Martin Fennell. What's the science behind non-stick pans? What prevents the sticking? What do you think? You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. Or you can join in the debate on the forum. That's nakedscientist.com slash forum. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to V Nguyen for production. Do join us at the same time next week when we're going to be looking at the world of medical marijuana. The UK has started to shift their policy and we'll be separating fact from fiction looking at the science of this controversial drug. If you have any thoughts, comments or feedback in the meantime, you can email them to chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University where it's supported by the EPSRC and by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. And thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.